Amen. That is our hope and prayer today, is that Christ would be exalted and lifted up, and our hearts and our lives and our minds would be transformed by him. Well, grab your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke, uh, third Gospel in the, in the New Testament, Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7. We're back in the Gospel of Luke. Many of you know it's part of our Presbyterian Reformed tradition uh, that we preach through books of the Bible. Uh, the reason why we do that is because God's Word is the only perfect rule of faith and practice and how to live. And so we believe in what we call Lectio Continuum, that you simply preach through books of the Bible uh, so that the preacher's mind or pet peeves aren't what's dictating the, the spiritual diet of the congregation, but it's the Spirit of God that's at work within us. Now, I put a little modern HDHD twist on it because after I have to take breaks occasionally because my mind can begin to think some things are laborious. So we preached through the book of Proverbs this summer. Now we're back in the Gospel of Luke. I want to thank uh, Chris Tibbetts for pinch hitting for me uh, last Sunday. It was, it was an honor to get to hear him preach last week. It was a little bit odd, though, to be worshiping at home. Uh, that, was, that was different, so I got to see what some of you experienced over the last year. But I'm glad to be back in God's house this morning and back in the Gospel of Luke. So Luke chapter 7, hear God's word this morning. Page uh, 863 in your Carillion Red Pew Bible, if you don't have your Bible with you. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And I'm a servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray and plead that today your spirit would move through the reading, the teaching, the preaching of your word today. Father, help me to properly handle your word this morning. Help me to appropriately apply it to the, the necessities and capacities of your people gathered here today and those gathered with us. We pray ultimately that Christ would be exalted. Pray that you prepare our hearts and our minds 
to hear and to heed your word this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Muhammad Ali once said, if you even dream of beating me, you better wake up and apologize. Muhammad Ali also said that he was the greatest. And it's not bragging if you can back it up and if you can do it. Muhammad Ali was the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, and many people found his arrogant, boastful claims humorous. Others found his arrogant, boastful claims repulsive. Regardless, he was a man who made some bold claims and many times, oftentimes, backed them up with his punch in the ring. To this day, some people still claim that Muhammad Ali is the greatest heavyweight boxing champion ever, though some will debate. What do I bring up Muhammad Ali to you this morning? Well, he was definitely a man that made some very bold claims. And I thought of him this week as I came to this passage because in this passage, we come head to head in a collision with one of the most bold claims in the history of the world. In fact, the Christian faith makes a very bold claim about Jesus. Jesus himself made a very bold claim about himself, and if this claim about himself is true, that it impacts all of history, and it impacts every aspect of your life, whether you realize it or not. And what is the bold claim that's highlighted by this passage of Scripture? It's this, that Jesus is Lord. Now, there are a lot of aspects of God's character that's highlighted in this passage. There are a lot of aspects and attributes of Christ that are highlighted in this passage. The fact that Jesus is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, and that he can heal people. It highlights the the hypostatic union of Christ, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, united in one person forever. There are different aspects and attributes of Christ's character and attributes that are presented in this passage that we could highlight today. But what's centerpiece in this passage is the fact Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? That he's master. That he's king. And thus he's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your absolute, complete devotion. John Stott says this. Since Jesus is Lord, then every part of our lives is under his lordship. Our homes. Our families. Our sexuality, our marriages, your job or even your unemployment, your money, your possessions, your ambitions, and even your recreations. If Jesus is Lord, then every aspect of your being is under his lordship and under him being master of the universe. When I was a kid, I had some toys called He-Man. 
master of the universe. He was kind of like a WWE wrestler meets a knight with the best bowl cut you've ever seen. That was fictional. This is historical. Muhammad Ali's bold claims of being the greatest were very limited and very specific in the sports arena even, that he was the boxing champion of the world, but, and his reign was temporary. But the bold claim of our Lord Jesus is not just specific in the time that Jesus walked upon the face of the earth, but it affects all of eternity. It affects all of history that Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then what does he require of us? Well, as we unpack this passage this morning, I want to take a look at several requirements of Jesus' Lordship that are placed upon us. The first requirement we see is that if Jesus is the Lord, then we must accept Jesus' ability. We must accept Jesus' ability. We see immediately in this passage that the centurion accepts Jesus' ability to be able to heal his servant. Well, let's peel back the context a little bit here, lest we forget where we are in Luke's gospel. Jesus has just landed the plane regarding his sermon on the plane that began back in chapter 6, verse 17. And following, it says in verse 17 of chapter 6, And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So that's the context, the greater context of this narrative that we, we pick up this morning. Is that Jesus has proven his ability to be able to exercise demons. He's proven his ability to be able to heal people of their diseases. And he's been doing it up to this point by touching them and healing them while they are in his presence. But notice how Jesus concludes his sermon on the plain in verses 46 through 49. Jesus says, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. What's Jesus saying as he lands the plane on his sermon on the plane? He's saying this, that if you want your, your life to be built on a solid foundation, you build it on the word of God, but you don't hear God's word, you put it into practice. That's the greater context of this centurion's encounter with Jesus. And here's what we encounter. A Roman centurion who at one time was a pagan, is going to be the proof text, the case study for what Jesus is talking about to his disciples. That those who call him Lord, Lord, trust him completely. They trust his ability in everything. And so what we see here in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After Jesus had finished all his sayings, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, I believe those are two different sermons personally, 
In the hearing of the people, it says he entered Capernaum. The, the, the aspect of Capernaum right here is just the fact that it's become the home base for Jesus' ministry at this point. It says that he's a centurion who had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. He was literally about ready to die. And the centurion was a Roman officer in Caesar's army. He typically had about 100 soldiers underneath his responsibility. And it says that this centurion has heard about Jesus, probably heard about all the healings, all the miracles, all the, the demon exorcisions that Jesus had performed. And he asks Jesus to come to him that his servant might be healed. Why? Because the centurion accepts Jesus' lordship. And how do we know that? Because the centurion accepts Jesus' ability to heal. Friends, every single one of us in this room this morning has something we need Jesus to help fix. Some of us are grieving this morning with a broken heart. And Jesus is able to comfort you. Some of us are battling illnesses or sicknesses or we have loved ones that are. And we need Jesus to heal them. Some of us this morning have questions and doubt about Jesus' identity or maybe we question Jesus' ability to heal us or even to forgive us. And so this morning we need to be reminded that Jesus is Lord and that he has the ability to heal you not only physically but more importantly to heal you spiritually for all of eternity. What is Jesus' lordship requires? It requires us to accept his ability. To accept his ability. Years ago, we would take some of our youth to a conference, a youth camp, a conference. And as youth camps and conferences go, at some point in the week or the weekend, we would have little goofy skits that would just try to get the kids' attention and make them laugh and grab their attention before we headed off into something more serious like worship or um, Bible study or some sort of small group setting. And one of the skits that they, they made me be a part of is they dressed me up like a mummy. Uh, they put me in an all-white suit and they, they dressed me up with toilet paper like a mummy and they made me claim that I was Dr. Betos. And that, how many of you ever heard of Dr. Betos? No one's ever heard of Dr. Betos? We're going to be introduced to Dr. Betos today. Because the great thing about Dr. Betos is that he can do anything. And to show you a little bit of the silliness of Dr. Betos, Dr. Betos would come into the gathering. He would claim to all the kids that he was Dr. Betos and he could do anything. And then the person emceeing that meeting would say, well, Dr. Betos, give us an example of something that you can do. And he would say, can you believe that I can hold my breath underwater for an hour? And the kids would be like, no. And the leaders would say, no. He'd say, I can do it. And he would claim his ability to be able to hold his breath underwater for an hour. And so then they would challenge him to prove that he could hold his breath underwater for an hour. And then Dr. Betis would do something similar to this. He would hold up a bottle of water, and he would breathe into his hand. And he would hold his hand 
under the cup of water. Ridiculous, right? Absolutely goofy. A play on words. A joke. With no real substance. Friends, there are many people that think that Jesus is Lord is a joke. They think it's a play on words. But it's not. Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He proved that not only in his incarnation, but more importantly through his death and resurrection and ascension. That he is the one who has conquered Satan, sin, and death. That he is the one that we can place our trust because he has the ability to reverse the curse of sin and death. And that's why the scriptures say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Why? How come? Because he's able. That's why he says in the scriptures that if we confess with our mouths and believe in our heart that Jesus died on the cross and God the Father raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Because Jesus is able. He's proven his lordship through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. That's the first requirement that we encounter in this passage is that Jesus demands us to accept his ability to heal us and to save us and to forgive us. Which brings us to the second requirement we see about Jesus' lordship in this passage. That we are to accept our unworthiness. Accept your unworthiness. Look at verses 4 through 7 in this passage. What we see in this passage is a centurion who simply just gets it. He gets the lordship of Jesus Christ. The centurion is not the ultimate hero of this text. Obviously, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. But nevertheless, we're going to see in just a few moments how our Lord Jesus is amazed by the centurion's faith and the fact that he simply gets who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. But notice in verses 4 through 7 how the centurion understands his unworthiness in this passage. It says in verse 4, and when They came to Jesus, remember that the centurion had sent elders of the Jews to Jesus, begging Jesus to come and heal his servant. It says in verse 4, when the elders came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, how many of you, when you read that passage, had a gut check? Hopefully you did. Hopefully those verses were read this morning, not just now, but earlier in the service. Hopefully your gut went, ooh, that just doesn't sound correct. That just doesn't sound right biblically, because it's not. But it's a common mistake that many of us make, that we think that because of our good works, because of our attempts to worship in God's house, our money that we tithe, the good things that we try to do, that somehow that makes us worthy of God's grace, worthy of God's love, or God forbid, that we would be so convinced, naively yet arrogantly, that God owes me something. Why did the elders think that Jesus owed this centurion a miracle? It says it in verse 5. I don't want you to miss it. It says, he is the one who built us our synagogue. The synagogue there in Capernaum. At that point in time in history, there would have only been one synagogue in Capernaum. And guess who paid to have it built? 
this centurion. So definitely the elders feel the pressure for Jesus to honor the centurion's request because they think, hey, maybe he'll claim the synagogue for himself. He won't let us meet there or worship there anymore. Don't miss the fact. That they feel indebted to the centurion because he's putting his faith into practice. Definitely a God-fearing man, but we see something more at at work in his heart and in his spirit in verses 6 and 7. It says, and Jesus went with them. Amazingly enough, Jesus doesn't debate them or scold them for their bad theology in verses 4 and 5. But it says in in verse 6, and Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. It's an imperative in the Greek. He's commanding himself, Lord Jesus, don't trouble yourself. Don't come. Don't come under my roof, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. What happens here? The centurion has a wholesome consciousness of his sin. As R. Kent Hughes says that, The centurion has a wholesome consciousness of his sin. He understands that he's unworthy to even be in the presence of Jesus Christ. He understands that he's not even worthy to have Jesus come into his house. Why? Because he's a sinner in need of God's saving grace. J.C. Ryle says this, There's only one way to account for the centurion's character. It was that the grace of God was at work in him. Humility is like this. It's one of the strongest evidences of the dwelling spirit of God. We know nothing of this by nature for we are all born proud. I'm convinced friends that one of the crown jewels of the Christian faith and Christian character, the proof that Christ is at work in you is that you become more and more humble over the years. And that's what we see as one of the second requirements of Jesus' lordship is that we must accept our unworthiness to be saved by him, to be in his presence. But his grace is sovereign and is poured out upon us strictly by God's good pleasure and will. There's a minister I know that has a regular practice on Sunday morning. He's a Presbyterian minister. Although you may question it if you saw him do this on a Sunday morning. He's actually a minister in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. He makes it his regular practice, this minister, to get to the church early in the morning before but far before anyone else gets there, like most preachers do. And he makes his way into the sanctuary every Sunday morning. And he lies prostrate on the ground in the sanctuary, either somewhere in the sanctuary or in front of the pulpit or behind the pulpit, he said. And he prays. Why does he pray in that posture? Because physically he's trying to remind himself of what is true spiritually. That God is holy and he's not. 
That God is infinite and he's not. He's finite. And that he's unworthy to be in God's presence that morning. That he's unworthy to stand at the pulpit, what some refer to as the holy desk, and to preach and teach the truth of God's word. So what is that minister doing? He's trying to submit himself visibly, regularly, to the Lordship of Christ. Reminding himself that he is unworthy to be there. Friends, do you admit today your unworthiness to be here in Christ's presence? Do you know the only way that we come here and we're not struck by lightning of judgment is that we come here through Christ? He's our mediator. Submitting ourselves to the Lordship of Christ is true at the beginning of our walk with Christ at our conversion because we admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior. But it's not only true about our conversion to Christ, it's also true in our sanctification of our walk with Christ. That more and more throughout the Christian walk, God reveals to us our sinfulness as we repent of it to Him And we beg him to mortify it, to kill it in our flesh, as the Puritans say. We're submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Because we're saying to him, as the centurion said, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Even more so, we're praying like the the tax collector prays later on in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 18, as he beats his chest, as the script, Jesus uh, contrasts in the parable of the, the publican and the, the tax collector that, that the tax collector, be, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the tax collector beats his chest, doesn't even dare to gaze up into heaven, but he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the proof that you get the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's a proof that you get the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only when you come to faith in Christ, but throughout your walk and your life with Christ is that you understand your unworthiness to be in his presence, to be saved by him, and even to still be sanctified by him. It is merely according to God's good pleasure and will, God's sovereign grace, that you're saved. Do you know that? This leads us to the third requirement that Jesus' lordship requires of us. It's not only that we accept Jesus' ability, we accept our unworthiness, but we accept Jesus' authority. Uh, This is powerful what happens in verses 7 through 10 in this passage. What happens is that we get the fact that this centurion understands the authority of Jesus' lordship better than the, the Pharisees do. He understands it better than Jesus' own disciples do at this time. How so? Well, we see what he says here in verse 7. Therefore, I do not presume to even come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. 
Remember just a few moments ago, I I read in chapter 6 of Luke's gospel that up to this point, when Jesus healed people, they came to him, he touched them, they were in his presence. But now the centurion says, just say the word, Lord Jesus, and my servant will be healed. How does the centurion get this? Well, the Lord uses some common grace insight in his life because he's a centurion. He's a man who's who's both in a position of authority with officers below him, and he's also a man who's under authority because he knows that he's not Lord, that Caesar is Lord, supposedly, of the Roman Empire. But this pagan Gentile that's coming to faith in Christ is beginning to grasp something about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That Jesus also is one who's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and everyone and everything is under his authority. So look at what the centurion says in verses 8 and following. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under under me, and I say to one, go, a command, and he goes. And to another, come, a command, and he comes. And to my servant. No doubt the centurion even had his servant who was sick at the point of death in mind when he said, and I tell him, do this. I command it, and he does it. What does the centurion get? He accepts Jesus' authority, that his lordship as such, that all he has to do is speak the word, and his servant will be healed. We see... As R.C. Sproul said many years ago, that we understand that Jesus is Lord because he was Lord even at creation. That in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. In the beginning, God created everything. How? By the power of his spoken Word. And so centurion gets Jesus' Lordship. He gets Jesus' authority because he says, Lord Jesus, all you have to do is say the Word. And my servant will be healed. And notice what happens in verse 9. Something only happens twice in the Gospels. It says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. There are only two times in the Gospels where it says that Jesus marvels. The first time is in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, when Jesus is preaching and teaching and trying to heal in Nazareth, and they reject Jesus' identity as the Messiah, reject Jesus' authority as Lord, because they say, isn't, isn't he the, the, the son of Mary and Joseph? Isn't he that carpenter's son? And it says in that passage, Mark 6, 6, that Jesus marvels at their unbelief. But here in Luke chapter 7, verse 9, it says that Jesus marvels at the centurion. Don't miss it, that a pagan gives Jesus' lordship more than the Pharisees do, more than Jesus' own disciples do. And don't miss it, it's significant that a centurion in Caesar's army gets the fact that there's one who's far greater than Caesar, and he's a Jewish Galilean peasant named Jesus. So Jesus says he marvels at them and he turns to the crowd that follows him and says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And how does Jesus prove his authority? Verse 10, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. 
Friends, some of you are in some situations right now that you feel like are hopeless. And it seems like some petty, pithy saying that Jesus is Lord. But it's not. It's the hope you have today. Jennifer was blessed that her symptoms of COVID were very mild. So as we tried to follow all the advice and the the doctors gave us, we slept in separate rooms. Fortunately for Jennifer, what the worst symptom she experienced was her anxiety rather than COVID, the fear of what could happen, not what was happening. As I was lying in bed one night, Jack chose me over her, by the way. I figure you need to know that. (laughs) He remembers who who fed him first. I didn't know what to pray or how to pray. And so I looked at this week's passage, and I thought, you dummy. (laughs) There it is. That although me and Jennifer were separated by distance, when it comes to Jesus' lordship, Distance makes no difference, friends. So I prayed, Lord, heal her. Because when it comes to your lordship, distance makes no difference. Parents, some of you, your children are going off to college. Or maybe some of them are getting ready to get married and you're worried about them. Remember that distance makes no difference. You pray and you intercede for your your children and your Lord Jesus will hear your prayers and he will answer your prayers because distance makes no difference when it comes to Jesus' lordship. Some of you are separated by your family right now by distance because they've moved or they're sick or they're quarantined. Remember that distance makes no difference when it comes to Jesus' lordship. He hears your prayers and he can answer your prayers. And some of your family members, your friends, maybe even your spouse or your children are far from Jesus right now. And you wonder, is it hopeful that they'll ever come back to Christ or ever come to Christ? Friends, I want to encourage you that distance makes no difference. When it comes to Jesus' lordship. Robert Murray McShane says this. If I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room. I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. Because Jesus is praying for you. Do you get it? Jesus is Lord. And that makes all the difference for you and for me. Let's pray.